It is very good to be back. Very good to be back. I missed you all very much. As we look at the expansion of the covenant of grace tonight that was introduced to us last week in Genesis 3.15, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to look at the call that was given. I want us to see the promises made. And then finally, I want us to see the promises believed. And if you're kind of wondering why the introduction is so short, is that I needed to save time. So I've already sent you my introduction. It was in round. So if you didn't read that, you're a little behind, right? Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you please grant power to the preaching of your word? Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken uh, our attention, open our sorrows, convict us, challenge us, and then please refresh us. Would you encourage us? Would you comfort us through the gospel? I am weak and needy and unfit for this task. I ask for your support and your strength and filling your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Allow me the ability to communicate with clarity, fluency, fervency, and grace. We ask these things for the sake of Christ in this church. Amen. Well, Aaron set the stage for us last week, not just for tonight, but for the next eight weeks. Adam and Eve, you remember, were expelled from the garden due to their sin. Paradise had been lost. Eternal life and fellowship with God was no more. And there was nothing they were going to be able to do to change that. They were not going to be able to remedy that on their own. But in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. He made a second covenant, one that was different than the covenant with works that he had made with Adam, and the one that Adam had just broken, one in which he himself would provide a way for salvation, or a way of salvation. He would send a Savior to make right everything that had been made wrong, but not immediately. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we see that sin leaves the garden, and it's passed from Adam to and through his seed, or his offspring. And we see uh, throughout, uh, beginning in chapter 4, and then we see throughout Scripture that but in chapter 4, we see the, the battle begin between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And when we arrive at chapter 6, things have changed dramatically from the way that they began. And remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says that at the end of the sixth day of creation, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to the heart, to his heart. And then in verse 12 it says that God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So things had changed dramatically and God's response was severe. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And in verse 13, he said, I determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But fortunately, in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So again, God's grace was made manifest. And the line through which that promised seed would come had been preserved. That seed promised in Genesis 3.15. But in the words of Derek Kidner, he says the whole act of judgment through the flood was partial. The survivors, who were Noah and his family, passed through a mere token of judgment only to carry into the world, into the new world, the sin of the old. As if to demonstrate that nothing less than complete death and rebirth would meet our situation. And by the time we reach chapter 11, mankind as a whole is rebelling against God and His command to be fruitful and multiply. And they're doing so by huddling up together and glorifying themselves. And in the aftermath of confusion and chaos that resulted from God's intervention, God was once again gracious. And He called out one man and in so doing preserved the seed of the woman. And that man was a pagan. He may not have been the youngest, but he definitely wasn't the oldest of three sons of a polytheist. And he was not seeking after God or the things of God. Look at one of chapter 12. Where we see the call given. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It sounds simple, but yet it's not. It's, it's actually an imperative. It's a command that's being given and it's an imperative that required Abram to, again, in the words of Derek Kidner, forsake all and follow. It was a call to separate himself from everyone and everything that was familiar and would have been most comfortable and to move to what was unknown, to what was foreign, and to what was awkward. It wasn't a call to withdraw into seclusion or isolation. It was a call to be set apart and to be different. It was a call to put his agenda and priorities aside and to depend upon the Lord for direction and provision and protection. It was a call to make a commitment to trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. And it was a call to follow the Lord much like the call Jesus gave to His disciples and therefore is given to us. 
to forsake all and follow. We are to treasure Him above all else. And that devotion should cause us to separate ourselves from the world. We're to resist the devil and to flee temptation. We're to mortify our sinful flesh. And what motivates us is the fact that we have been set apart by the Lord unto Himself. We've been cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ. So our priorities are to be different. And in some cases, even at odds with the priorities of the world, our agendas and our schedules and our methods are, be, are to be different. And at times should run counter to and even to be opposed to the agendas and the schedules and the methods of the world. And those differences should cause us to feel as though we're strangers who are uncomfortable and at times unwelcome and unwanted by the individuals and the institutions and the systems of the world. And at the same time, it's not a call to arrogantly and purposely pit ourselves against the world or to despise the world and withdraw from the world. We're, we're to be in the world, not of the world. We're to be in the world, but distinct from the world. As a matter of fact, John seven in John 17, Jesus prays that His disciples would not be removed from the world. Because they've been sent to the world by Him as the Father had sent Him into the world. But He also said that we would be hated by the world. Because the world hates Him. So the questions for us tonight are, have you and have I forsaken all to follow the Lord Jesus? How comfortable or how uncomfortable are you? How comfortable and how uncomfortable am I in the world and with the things of the world? Do you, do I feel like a stranger or like a foreigner and in exile, far from home. Do you, do I, despise the world and fail to engage it? Do you and do I love the world and fail to remain distinct from it? Where do we stand in the midst of the world in which we live? Well, the command alone was not going to provide the impetus for uh, Abram. It, it wasn't going to provide what he needed to obey and to forsake all and to follow. Throughout Scripture, we see over and over and over again that imperatives do not carry the power to bring about what they command. The imperatives are followed and commands are fulfilled when the indicatives precede them. The power is in the indicatives. The power is in the declaration and the promises. The power is in the gospel. And this situation is, is no different. Look at verses 2 and 3. God said, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
The covenant that God was making with Abram was uh, a unilateral covenant. Right? There was nothing that was being negotiated. There was nothing being mutually determined in this covenant. God was in the midst of establishing a relationship with, Adam, uh, with Abram and was doing so through unconditional promises. We know from verses 1 and verses 7 that we did, verse 7 that we didn't read, that God is promising a land. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see that he was promising Abram enough descendants to create a nation that would fill that land. And then he was promising Abram particular favor. He was promising to exalt Abram's name to a place of honor and respect, something that those that in Babel had attempted but had failed to do on their own. He was promising that nations would be blessed, all nations would be blessed through him and through what he was going through, what God was going to do through and with Abram. And these promises weren't based on anything inherent in him. He was also, by the way, promising to bless those who honored Abram and curse those who didn't. And nothing, none of these promises were based on anything inherent in Abram. He hadn't proven himself to be righteous enough. He hadn't proven himself to be worthy enough to receive these blessings and these promises. He hadn't merited the Lord's favor enough to, to have this bestowed upon him. Everything was promised simply based upon the grace of God and the kind intention of His will. It all result, it all came about from the Lord Himself. And, and notice what Abram does. He believed God. And we know that it's not a part of our text, but I'm going to bring it into our text tonight in, in verse 4. It says, So Abraham or Abram went as the Lord had told him. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But remember that he went. So we for now need to move to chapter 15. Look at verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. And so as not to spoil our study of these chapters in the spring, let me simply say this. At the end of chapter 14, Abram refuses to receive a reward from the wicked king of Sodom uh, based upon his part, based upon Abram's part in the victory uh, in the battle between the, the four on five battle of the Canaanite kings. And, and so in verse 1 of chapter 15, God comes to Abram in a vision and he assures him that he didn't need that reward. You didn't need that reward, Abram. Why? Because his reward was coming in the form of the promises that God had just made to him. So what God is doing in this situation with Abram is saying, Abram, listen, rest in me in the promises that I have made to you. Abram hadn't forgotten the promises. 
But he was still being reminded of those promises. And he hadn't forgotten those promises, particularly the ones in regard to the descendants. And he hadn't forgotten them because we learned earlier in verse 30 of chapter 11 that he and, and Sarah had no children because she was barren. So it was going to be something that was going to be hard for him to forget because he had just heard. He, he knew that his wife was barren. They didn't have children, couldn't have children. And yet God is promising children. So Abram says, well, since you brought it up, I've got a question. In verse 2 he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, you've promised me a nation of descendants. I have no offspring of my own. Right now, any inheritance I have is going to be given to my servant. Because I don't have any children. So how is this going to happen? And it's not an antagonistic question. It's not an antagonistic question coming from frustration and doubt. He earnestly has he earnestly wants to know. And we know he's he's believing in what he's been hoping for. But remember, his faith is new. His faith is, is growing. It's being formed with each passing day. And so he's, what he's looking for is assurance of the things that are seen. And at this point, he doesn't have any experience himself, really, to, or not much to, to go on or to draw from. He doesn't have all this experience of God's faithfulness to this point. And so he's He's asking the only one who can answer. And we know he's not being antagonistic based upon God's response. Look at verse 4. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be. Your very own son shall be. And he brought him outside. And said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall you wash. The Lord doesn't get angry. The Lord is patient and gracious. He's not put off by it. He, the Lord simply says, Abram, Abram, your, your heir is not going to be your son. Never fear. You're going to have a son. And through that son, you're going to have a multitude of descendants. And in order for you to, to grab a hold of this promise and, and remember it, I want you to go outside. And Abraham goes outside and God says, I want you to look up in the sky. And Abraham looks up into the sky and God says, count the stars. Impossible. Right? And he says, well, that's how many descendants you're going to have. When Abram's faith needed to be encouraged, the Lord reminded him of his promise and then gave him a tangible sign to hold on to. Again, Jerry Kinder calls it a visible word. And it was it was something, it wasn't something that he could touch or feel, but it was something that he could see. It was something that every night for the next many years. He would go outside and could look up and could remember that promise and could be assured that those promises were true. And this, of course, is 
the foundation and the origin of our covenant signs of baptism in the Lord's Supper, through which God confirms the promise of Abraham. For you see, while God did promise Abraham many offspring and said that, that the promises would be experienced through one offspring or one son, which would be Isaac rather than Ishmael, the promises would ultimately be realized through the one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Paul in Galatians and Romans, was the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent of the, uh, the head of the serpent. Which is why Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Oh, well, Baptism is that tangible sign that assures us that Christ's blood has cleansed us from our sin and that the Spirit of God has been poured out upon us and that we've been united to Christ. And the Lord's Supper is that tangible sign that assures us of the reality and the benefits of Christ's work on our behalf, His death, and of our feeding upon and receiving Him spiritually when we come in faith and to participate in the Sabbath. So, brothers and sisters, the questions for us are this. Does your, uh, does your faith ebb and flow like mine? Are there times when, when you have questions about the truth of Scripture and the promises that the Bible says are ours in Christ like me? In just a minute, the Lord is going to say to you and to me, You've heard the word. Now come. Look, feel, smell, taste. And rest assured that my word is sure and true. And my promises will come to If you are trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that you have been set free. And if you have been set free, you are free indeed. And he's given us a sign to assure us of that very fact. Let's look at the promises we read in verse 6. We read of Abram's response. It's a verse that's quoted by Paul. We heard it just a moment ago in Romans 4, and he also quotes it in Galatians and James, we, we saw it quoted by James in chapter 2 of our study just a couple of months ago. And it says, and he, who is Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And I love how Ligon Duncan describes this scene. He says, Abram's fate was not such a one that simply said, well, I'm going to be optimistic that this is going to turn out for the best. I'm just going to hope that things sort of turn out in the end. No. That was not Abram's faith. Abram looked at the facts and he said, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. But my God is also one of the facts of this experience. And he has been faithful to me. And I will trust him. Despite all the other evidence to the country. And it was through that faith that Abram was declared righteous. His faith wasn't a meritorious work. 
through which he earned right standing with God. His faith was the conduit through which he received a righteousness that was not his own. In other words, he was justified by grace alone through faith alone. And of course, this is just as true for us today as it was for him then. Like Abraham, we aren't declared righteous. We aren't justified on the basis of our good works or our obedience. We are declared righteous by faith. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. We're, we're not saved because of our own inherent righteousness because we have no inherent righteousness. None of us do. We're saved because of the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness has been imputed to us, credited to us, through our faith in Him. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, And if you are Christ, and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And later on in Galatians chapter 4, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Those who are looking to Christ for their salvation are counted among Abraham's offspring, not physically, but spiritually. We're counted among the stars in the sky that Abraham saw. We're among those of all the nations who have been blessed because we are a part of the family of God that is from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Let me wrap up by going back to verse 4. Again, I know it's not in the text. I mean, it's in the text. It wasn't in our passage that was supposed to be preached tonight. I reserve the right to bring it in. Abraham went, as the Lord told him to. And we ask ourselves, why? You remember from our study of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed, when he was called to go out to a place that he had, uh, he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. God revealed himself to Abram. And Abram responded out of an assurance and out of a conviction of God's promises. Specifically in regard to the land. His faith made the future inheritance... And the unseen land, both present and visible. But it wasn't merely assurance and conviction of his, of his possession of a temporal land. But assurance and conviction of a possession of an eternal city. The eternal city of God that we read about in Revelation 21. And the language indicates that he responded immediately and with eagerness. Some have said that he didn't even wait for God to finish before he was on his way. But even if he did, as one commentator put it, the sound of his voice was still ringing in his ears. And he did so despite the fact that he didn't know exactly where he was going. The future was uncertain. There was an unpredictability to it all. There was a lack of clarity. It's not going to be told chapters 13 and 15 that, that he really knows 
with any specifics what the land's going to be like. And then in verse 9 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. It's very interesting that he goes to the promised land, but then he doesn't set up or establish a permanent residence. He doesn't lay a foundation and build upon the foundation. He stays in tents. He stays in temporary dwellings. He remains a, show, a sojourner. He remains nomadic. He's a resident alien. He lived among the Canaanites as a foreigner. He never really settled down. He never really fit in. He never really belonged. He was just passing through. And in verse 10, we learn why. It says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham not only had the assurance and conviction that the Lord would take him and lead him to the promised temple land, but he had the assurance and the conviction that God was going to take him to a final destination. Canaan was not the final destination. It was just a stop along the way. It was promised. That land was promised, but it wasn't the complete fulfillment of that promise. He knew Canaan itself was a part of the promise, but he knew it pointed to something far greater. He was waiting for something more. And the language there that they're looking for was this continuous expectation of absolute certainty. And this absolute certainty was in a permanent residence in a city designed and built by God. He knew by faith he was a part of a, he was a citizen of a kingdom greater than any earthly kingdom. He was going to reside in a city that was far more magnificent than any city in Canaan. He knew one day he'd settle down. He knew one day he would belong. He knew one day he would no longer be a stranger or an alien or an exile. He knew that all, all of what had been promised would not be realized in his earthly existence. And therefore, he didn't attempt to make it a reality while there. He didn't attempt to create heaven on earth. He didn't attach himself to anything that was temporary. He knew there was far more to be expected than the temporal blessings and benefits of this world. He knew it was only in death that he would experience the fullness of the promise. He knew the complete treasure awaited for him. He knew in Peter's words that God was holding, was, was maintaining, was keeping his, his inheritance in heaven. He knew it was already, but he also knew it was not yet. And he looked forward to it. And he knew that it wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to attain it until, in the words of our confession, that he passed into glory. He knew in, in life he was a stranger. And an alien and an exile, but in death, he would be the owner that God had promised him to be. And he died in faith, believing that to be true. And he was rewarded for it. And brothers and sisters, our brother Hutch, he, one of Abraham's offspring, 
that a child of promise knows that reality today. He knows it. His faith is silent. And one day the rest of us are going to be just like him. And we will see the Lord Jesus as he is. Because we too are looking to and resting in Christ. By God's grace, he's revealed himself to us. He's raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's removed our hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh. He's given us faith. And that faith makes the future present and the unseen visible. And that faith is an active faith. It's a faith that responds when He speaks and He speaks to us through His Word. So let me ask two final questions. Do we believe God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God? And do our lives exhibit a trust in the fact that He who has promised and spoken to us is in fact there? May that be so. It's good. Gracious Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Enable us to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. May it pass from our ears to our hearts and from our hearts to our lips in our conversations. So as you bless those who have heard the word preached this evening and may the seed sown in us be raised in power and so forth through the righteousness. In Christ's name and for his sake, Amen.